Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Achtung, Achtung, Panza! You are listening to uh, We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. And we are delighted to be joined by uh, Nick Moran. Welcome, Nick. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Thank you. I have to say, I got, in- I got a heads up that you were talking to me and uh, in your last podcast. I'm listening to it <laughs> going, oh my God, he's bigging me up like no, nobody's business. It's, I, I'm, I'm not that good. <laughs> there are actually people who know more about tanks than I do. Oh, uh, well, rubbish. I don't know. I don't know about that. Um, uh, um, now, Nick, you're in Texas. In I the am. Of Texas. San Antonio, right? okay. Alamo City, also known as Military City, USA. Fantastic. So you, you live in, the, you live in, you're surrounded by tanks, AFVs at all times, yeah? Uh, I wish. Uh, I was actually very disappointed. I, I, my other career, I'm a uh, reservist in the National Guard, and uh, Texas used to have an armored division. There isn't, a, outside of one training school, there isn't a tank in the Texas Guard anymore. Very disappointing. But that there are a, a couple of museums That must be incredibly here. disappointing. Now, um, uh, I've, I came across you on the, uh, uh, on the internet and then, and then got, said to James, you've got to check this guy out. Um, I think it's fair to say that y- you're, you're part of... Um, uh, 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 let's let's put it this way: a, a new wave of looking at, um, particularly Western Allied armor. Another way of looking at this thing, this subject that had become pretty much encrusted in its own sort of, um, in its own uh, historiography, its own sort of um, uh, tropes and memes and all that sort of thing. And you're very much interested in saying, "Hang on a minute, we need to look again at some of this stuff, aren't you?" Correct. I'm not the only one doing this, of course. Uh, no, 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 of course not. And I, I think uh, th- there are two people that you you particularly bring credit to. Uh, Steve Zaloga is one of them, uh, American author. And uh, he started off, I think, I'm, I'm not going to call it Sherman revisionism, because that implies that there was something to revise that was wrong in the first place, because there was nothing wrong with the Sherman. You guys know that. I've heard you talk very lovely about the Sherman. And... Uh, he, he wrote two books in particular. Armored Thunderbolt was a good overview of, uh, of how the Sherman was developed and designed. And more recently, and I think this is the bit that uh, somebody like David Willey would accept as well, he wrote a book called Armored Champion. And uh, it's wonderful. So uh, both Willie and myself have used a term which Americans don't understand because it doesn't exist here. Is that people look at tanks like they're top trumps. Yeah, uh, I play 8.8 centimeter gun. You play 10 centimeters of armor. I went whatever. 
it doesn't exist here. And of course, that's not how you, you know, I've heard you talk about it. That's not what, how tanks work. And in Armored Champion, he looks at this traditional, which this tank is better than that tank under two categories. One he calls soldier's choice, i.e. if you were Joe Smith and you wanted to be in a tank, which one would you be in? And even at that, that's questionable because there is the perception of what is safer and there's the actual reality of what is safer. But let's leave that aside for now. So if, if, you're, if you're in World War II and your perception is the Panther has a bigger gun, better armor, you probably want to be in it. And of course, this is without the benefit of the statistical assessments afterwards. The other thing that he does is he also rates tanks under commander's choice or general's choice. If you want to win a war, which tank do you want? <laughs> and for, he does this for every year from 1939 <clears throat> to 1945. And very rarely are the two tanks the same. I, I think one year, I, I, I can't remember which tank it was. I think it might have been the Stungerschutz. Uh, right. He picked Commander's Choice and uh, Troop Choice as the same. Every other year is different. But Nick, when he's talking about commanders, is he talking about kind of regimental commander, battalion commander level, or is he talking general? Probably more general. Uh, right. So division or corps or army level, much higher. So the, so kind, the kind of battle, the kind of battle you're trying to fight not on a quasi-strategic level, rather than simply the tactical thing in front of. So we're talking about Correct, we're yeah. talking about about bear line or, or someone like that. Yeah, something like that. So I mean, the idea is you, you're looking at a battalion on the map, and you see this flag. It says this is the X battalion. You have in your mindset a certain, I guess, if you're a war gamer, a combat power. Just how much can this battalion do? And with an American unit and later in the war British units, you've got a pretty fair idea what that is. It may not be as high as the theoretical level of a German battalion, let's say, but at least you know what it is and you can make a reasonable estimation of what you need. And if you're an infantry commander, you have a reasonable estimation that yes, a tank will come along and support you. Whereas a German, if you look at a battalion flag for the Germans, yes, you know that there's a colonel, you know that there's an aide-de-camp and so on, but you're not entirely sure, do they have 10 panzers or do they have 40 panzers without actually going and looking at the statistics and then hoping that it doesn't change in between when you got your last report and when you actually send them into battle. Right. Yeah. And right. Uh, again, it's which is very much the reality of, of how the German army's working from from. 1942 onwards, isn't it? Is that, I, I think it's even earlier. I remember James talk, yeah. talking to me about the Luftwaffe after 1940. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how, how you have you know your paper strength of a squadron and the actual strength of a squadron. Yeah, and you're Whereas absolutely right. The British right. had I their mean, reserves. You, you know, in something like a, a situation in, in Normandy, orders come up from sort of core level to, let's just say, you know, the Hitler Jugend Division, the, the 12th Waffen SS, um, uh, to... Um, Panzermeyer, and and it says right, go and go and counterattack against this gap that's developed here, and and so he goes, okay, fine, Yavol, I'm I'm on it. Um, <laughs> what have what? we got? And he finds he's only got four Panzer fours left, and so the kind of you know the the company commander that's got those four Panzer fours goes, uh, but I've only got four Panzer fours, and Panzermeyer just goes, well, that's just too bad. You just got to go and fill that hole. And he goes, Yavol, and off he goes. But but. As you say, Panzermeyer might have thought there were 10. I mean, you know, it's just, it's, you know, at any given moment, it's really, really hard to know if you're a divisional commander, how many 
how many armoured fighting vehicles you've got because it's it's such a fluid situation and because you know you haven't got that support of resupply that the Americans and Canadians and British do. Yeah, there's a, there was a test that the British Army did. It was called Exercise Dracula. And I've written about it. And I think people take the wrong impression from this. They, they, they look at it because the Sherman did so well. It, it was basically they ran each tank two and a half thousand miles. All the way up. You know, if the, the distance was all the way up from John O'Groats down to... Yes. Yeah, and back and twice, whatever. The, the British tanks didn't do well. Okay, that, they fixed them, generally speaking, by the time they got to war. But the American tanks at the time were fantastic. And if you look at what the, uh, the officers were saying, there was one line particularly... A battalion commander can be confident that he will have at least 99% of his tanks available after driving a thousand miles. And that's a, that, that tells you, I mean, he may have been exaggerating a little thing, but that, that's the mindset that you have but to that's, have. That's the legacy of North Africa, though, isn't it? Of, 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 of 41, 42 in North Africa, where the British made tanks are simply uh, uh, fall into pits of reliability problem pits, don't they? Where they get they they keep being so reliability edges its way to the front of what your uh, battle commander wants, isn't it? Rather than firepower, rather than armor, he he's just saying as long as I know how many tanks I've got on the start line, that's the thing that matters to me more than anything else. And if I realize that they have a worse gun, then I can just take that into account at the beginning. And the yeah. Soviets, from particularly, uh, especially in the Cold War, it's all mathematical tables. And when yeah. it's almost like the Soviet officer, their job wasn't to make tactical decisions as much as to assess the situation that they are in and then go to the book of instruction and say, okay, in this situation, which I think we are in, the book tells me I need to have this many battalions of this, this many regiments of artillery, this and so on and so forth. To bring this firepower to bear to this situation. Basically. Correct, because right. that, is what is, that is what is calculated to give me the victory. So he gets his essentially gets his slide rule out and, and, and plots. Gosh, that's, fa that that's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, really, but really, it, but yeah. it makes perfect sense. It really does, yeah. for, especially for the Soviet situation so where they didn't necessarily train so well. Yeah, but also, so you're not you're not just going. Oh my God! You know they've got lots of Panthers and we haven't got enough big enough tanks. You're thinking, okay, I need this number of tanks, but I also need this number of anti-tank guns and this number of mortars and artillery supporting me as well before I kind of go into this battle. And a whole lot. And again, as you've mentioned in the past, tank versus tank isn't all that critical in the big scheme of things anyway. It's about 7%, and it's, isn't it, I think? It's worked out. That it's some, about, something but, something like that. Then 20% anti-tank guns. Yes. Yeah. And uh, if, you, if you look at the assessment, I mean, everybody tries, even the army tries to make these assessments. And uh, there was one after the war that says, okay, we think on average a Panther was worth 1.2 Shermans or whatever the, the figure was. <laughs> Which is fine because you can do that mathematically because you do the assessments, you know there was a tank there, you know there was a tank there. Now, the problem is, and, and again, this is also, oh, well, what tank would you want to be in? If you're an infantryman, and that was what most people were, and you are faced with an MG-34, an MG-42 against you, you really don't care how good the tank is as long as it is better than an MG-42. <laughs> and if you are an allied person, the chances are you can get on the horn and you can say, guys, I need a tank, please. And then lo and behold, four or five Shermans roll up and they save you. But there's no way to statistically account for how many infantry lives were saved by the fact that a Sherman, which, yes, would lose in a one-on-one -on -one duel against a German tank, more often than not, and even that has come to an asterisk. Uh, you can't account for that. And, uh, and to the infantryman, the tank that shows up to shoot the, the machine gun is the most glorious, best tank in the world. Right. So your infantryman has a completely different view of this stuff. 
He does. He wants tank support. <laughs> which is why in reverse, which is why in reverse, a Stug three is perfectly good. Is if we're looking at it from the German perspective, that actually, when we've talked about this before, so why not make more of those? And why waste time on the on the on the bigger vehicles? Because if it's about integrated arms, if it's about you know, like you say, the infantryman being rescued by the tank, a Stug three, a Stug four is perfectly serviceable, does that job, doesn't matter, doesn't need to have an 88mm gun on it, and so on. Correct. Now, there is one more caveat in this, because if you're the German, there's always this argument you see online, oh, the Germans shouldn't have made so many Panthers and should have sent more with the more reliable Stugs or Panzer IVs. Well, here's the problem. A Panther still takes a five-man crew like, like a Panzer IV. If you only have five men available and the German army is starting to run a little bit short on personnel and fuel and so on, do you want them in a Panzer IV or do you want them in a, in a Panther? Or, or better yet, a Panzer IV or a Sturmgeschutz. Yep. And there's no two ways that the Panzer IV is better overall than a Sturmgeschutz. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it, but, it, but, it is, but it is still a numbers game, isn't it? I mean, I mean one of the arguments is, is that if you can't produce gargantuan numbers of tanks, then you might as well have fewer of really good tanks. But, but so so then there is a kind of sort of weird logic to having the tiger and the panther, which are incredibly complex. But you've still got to be able to support them in the field. So if you can't, if you haven't got enough cranes and hoists and you know tank transporters and fuel and and the men to kind of do it, I mean, because you know, I mean, there's that 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 kind of famous document. Um, uh, German tank maintenance done by the Americans, kind of. I think. I think it's yeah, right. And and basically, what it says is, you know, sort of lack of German tank maintenance is a better title. Uh, but but actually, they have the structures for it, and, and actually, the structures for tank maintenance in the field are basically the same as the Americans, basically the same as the British. The problem is they don't have enough trained men, and they don't have enough trained people to man drivers and all the rest of it because they don't have many vehicles in the first place. So your nineteen-year-old recruit is being rushed through training hasn't driven a car before anyway because they don't have many cars and there isn't much fuel. And then he's confronted with a Tiger or a Panther, which is an incredibly difficult thing to drive because it's so complex, unlike a Sherman, which is kind of, you know, four forward and one back and it's kind of manual and, you know, everyone drives in America and they're kind of used to it. So it's a kind of, you know, your your, your start point is, is it's a bit like kind of putting a 19-year-old a who's just passed his driving test into a kind of sort of, into a kind of Ferrari. You know, it doesn't, you know, the chances are they're going to cock it up. Whereas if you just put them into a kind of, you know, a Chevrolet, it'll be fine. And and, and, and that's the kind of the, the difference. And the problem you've got from certainly, well, from all the way through their time is that they just don't have enough field maintenance to be able to sustain those kind of but, complex. But they don't have enough people. They don't have enough enough people full stop. They don't have enough people full stop. I mean, because I mean, I, I, I mean, after all, before Barbarossa, there's that vacation people are given... So soldiers are given to go back to their jobs to uh, to work in munitions factories and stuff. Two's writes about this. There's a yes. little, you get a, you get you get a sort of four month furlough to go and make ammunition so before you return to your unit to fight because they're so short of people and they're short of skilled labour. Uh, uh, they're short of soldiers and of skilled labour. You know, like there's just there's just not enough. There's just not enough pieces on the chessboard for them to play a proper game. Is the yeah. is yeah, the, the only right, winning right, move is not to play, as the movie said. Exactly, exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, you know, I um, do. So, so sorry. Oh, I mean, I do, I do remember that. You know, after Operation Goodwood, I think it was the second battalion of the Northamptonshire Yeomanry had lost thirty-seven of their you know fifty odd tanks, and you know, so by the by the twentieth of of August, they were out of the picture. 
And yet by the 30th of, of, of um, sorry, July, by the 30th of July, they had not only had they completely rebuilt their, their regiment, their battalion. I mean, they were absolutely back at full strength. They'd moved and were ready for the start of Operation Bluecoat. I mean, that's pretty impressive support isn't it that you can you can have a have a uh, an, an armored unit that is basically completely wrecked in two days of fighting in operation goodwood and 10 days later it's back to full strength mm. and of course you have to have the crewmen. it's not just getting replacement tanks off the factories and off the ships you've also got to have the crewmen who survived the previous experience yep and have and... to be persuaded to get back into those <laughs> tanks. I mean, this is this is always the this is always a, 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 again the, the the one of the things I think we've talked about a lot a, a, across the podcast is is that you know the, the allies don't have the means at their disposal to get people back into those vehicles, do they? That they, they, they don't have their fanatic uh, n- n- Nazi imbibed you know people people who've been who've grown up under Nazism, so are fully, fully programmed, especially the younger people that the Germans have, you know, they, and, and they, don't, they don't have uh, the, the option of shooting people if they don't do as they're told either, not really. So how you get crews back into tanks after a, thi- after a thi- thing as famous, as notorious as Goodwood is, is an interesting question, isn't it? I, I think uh, that goes back much further. So it, it just happened by... By sheer and complete coincidence, uh, I was at Gettysburg last week, maybe two weeks ago, and I'm looking at the ground that uh, that was Pickett's Charge, mm. three quarters of a mile of open ground. Yeah, and you got guys standing so- shoulder to so- shoulder, advancing into fire, knowing that the they're, they're pre- presenting a wonderful target. And I'm there. How do you get people to do that? I mean, I I, I don't know. I, I really don't, and happily, I've never been tested with that question myself because I have a seventy-something ton Abrams, and I'm invulnerable. <laughs> At least I like to think I am. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, it, it's and you see how many times somebody had a tank shot out from under them to get back in. I think even Lafayette Poole, uh, the the American tank ace, I think he had two tanks shot out from under him before the third one finally put him out for good. He lost his leg. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I was just looking at uh, the Battle of Geilenkirchen, November 1944, where the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry are supporting the 84th Infantry Division, US 84th Infantry Division. And John Semkin, who is the commander of A Squadron in the Sherwood Rangers, he has the unique distinction of his tank hitting four mines simultaneously. Um, But they all survive. So it's obviously the, the tank becomes immediately shoeless. And uh, they get out and he jumps into another tank, which, you know, half an hour later gets gets knocked out. He jumps out of that one again, goes into a third tank and eventually that one gets knocked out. So he, he gets knocked out of three tanks in one day. Dear God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you just got to just got to tip your hat to the guys. I said, look, we're here to do a job. Let's do the damn job so we can go home. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, which is which, which is probably the explanation, actually. But but again, one I, I, I can't begin to um, uh, relate to or understand. We've got to take a break right now. We're talking to Nick Moran. We'll be back in a second. episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. 
It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person, and I appreciate you, and I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. James Holland and I are talking to Nick Moran. Tanks, tanks, tanks. So, Nick, how? Why did tanks draw your, um, for obviously your deep fascination and interest? What? What was it? I mean, is it simply tanks are cool? Uh, what? Because they are. The start off, it really. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember when I was uh, before I joined the American Army. I was uh, I did a little little stint in the Irish reserves, and I remember the sergeant, you know, just asking, "Why did you join?" And people, you know, the, the normal answer is patriotism, duty, sense of service. And you know, okay, I'll tell you why I joined, says the sergeant. It's because I just watched Rambo the day before. And I thought, oh, that could be me. <laughs> going around with a machine gun. <laughs> and uh, I, actually, I was interested in the Navy before I, before I got into the Army. And uh, I was playing war games, harpoon, whatever. And so I was thinking to myself, well, what would new recruits, seamen recruit Moran be doing in the Irish Navy, and I have visions of myself standing watch at 2 a.m. January in the North Atlantic, <laughs> being battered, cold, wet, and miserable. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if I'm going to be cold, wet, and miserable, at least let me not worry about having to swim to shore. So I went, I, I, I joined the Army, and I, I didn't think this through, though, because in the Navy, after you're done with your two hours of being cold, wet, and miserable, you go inside, and there's electricity and heating and whatever. And in the army, you get into your cold, wet sleeping bag and you continue to be miserable until it's time to wake up, which you can't do because you never fell asleep in the first place because you're too cold, wet, miserable. Um, so anyway, I, I was in a cav unit in Ireland and not much armor, whatever. It was still fun. So I, I, go, I come to the US and I decide for some silly reason I miss the army life. And I have this sort of misguided sense of socio-moral responsibility that if the country's good enough for me to want to actually come to it, I'll, I'll give a little back. 
and uh, my initial thought was that there was an Air Force unit near me. It was an air rescue wing, and uh, they, they do both combat search and rescue, and in peacetime, they do civilian search and rescue in the mountains, in the Sierra Nevadas of California, or off the California coast. And I figured that's a fairly honorable way of, uh, of serving and wearing a uniform. The recruiter never called me back for whatever reason. So I, I had a friend of mine who says, hey, Nick, we're shooting some tanks down in Fort Hunter Liggett. Do you want to come and watch? Yeah, all right, I'll, I'll come watch. So I'll go down and watch. And I realized I could do that. That looks fun. <laughs> so I, so I, join, uh, I go to the recruiter and say, I'd like to be a tanker, please. They look at me and say, well, you're too tall and too colorblind. Ah, okay, what can I do? Well, what do you do in a civilian? Oh, I work IT. Great, we'll put you into IT. He said, no, I work <laughs> IT Monday to Friday, 9 to 5 anyway. On a weekend, I want to blow things up. <laughs> and they're looking at me like, like I have two heads. So I said, why, why, is this a hard why is this a hard concept to understand? Uh, eventually, look, how do I get into tanks? Uh, if I, and I, it turns out to be the correct thing to say is, if I don't get what I want, I'm walking out the door. <laughs> Which in the U.S. Army, where where you have to get recruited. So in Ireland, it's like you put an ad in the paper, and there are ten applicants for every place in the army. But in the U.S., the recruiters have to earn their living and actually get people to sign on. And uh, they come up with a couple of different options for me to get into into armor that are legal, but kind of skirt the rules a little bit. Right. And I choose one of them, and uh, I ended up in a tank, and I'm happy to say I took my tank to Iraq, which most tankers did not. There is an acronym for that, for tanker without a tank. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which has a slightly different connotation in the U.S. than the yeah, U.K. Yeah, slightly but different, yeah, yeah. You, you get the idea. Yeah, yeah, That's absolutely. very funny. <laughs> and uh, so I went with the tank, was happy enough. Then uh, I was also fortunate enough to move to Bradley's. So I, uh, I did tanks, I did Bradley's, and not many armor officers get to do that because usually you end up in a striker unit or a cav or a light cav unit or something like that just to spread you around. So I got lucky with that and I started volunteering at a tank museum in uh, California, the old Littlefield collection, which is now, most of it has been split up. So, and it's in all sorts of places. If you go to Cairns, Australia, or Cairns, Australia, uh, Rob Lowe has put together an amazing private collection, absolutely huge, uh, in like four years. Astounding. And of course, the only reason to go to Cairns is if you're going to the Great Barrier Reef. So it's a right. vacation. You, you, you tell the wife to, to bugger off there, go shopping or something like that while you spend a day at Cairns. So he bought a bunch of these vehicles that were in California. The core of the collection went to the Collings Foundation up in Boston, Massachusetts. Right. That area, uh, technically Hudson Stowe. So if you're in that area, they have a absolutely pristine collection. And unlike most museums, when you go to Bobbington, when you go to Sumer or whatever, you'll see normally the hatches are closed. Uh, because what they've really done is that the tank is a bit of a wreck. They painted it up on the outside to make it look nice. But if you were to look inside behind the curtain, you realize that they're kind of wrecks. The Massachusetts Museum, all the hatches are open. And they put, including the top hatches, and they've got a balcony that you can look down into the vehicles right. because all these tanks are absolutely show, showroom factory. I mean, their Panther probably didn't look as good as it does now when, the day it left the factory. <laughs> it, it, it's amazing. Uh, so I hung around there, and uh, eventually uh, I got picked up by World of Tanks, and that kind of brought me into the public eye a bit more. 
and we went. So the, the, your your work with World of Tanks, because I know you spent you know you've spent an awful lot of time at Bombington at the Tank Museum down down the road from where I am, and I mean I you know this is something that really 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 struck me when I first got talking to you is is you know you're pouring over these tanks in kind of such intimate detail, and you're talking to the guys who maintain them as well. Whereas the average historian is just sitting in his office looking at books and kind of reading stuff and reading documents. But there is there is definitely a huge benefit to be had from actually going and seeing this stuff, isn't there? And sitting inside it and seeing how it works and talking to people who are working on them all the time. There is. And uh, I will always learn something when I go to one. I mean, there is a level if you look at the back of, I remember looking at the back of an M3 medium, the Grant. And I'm looking at a set of bolts on the right hand side directly behind the gun uh, bulge on the sponsor. I'm thinking to myself, why are they different to all the other ones? Why are they screw heads and not uh, typical rivet heads? And this is where a little bit of experience comes in as well, because you know how, roughly how a tank works and you can start to do some assessments in your head as to what they could be. And then I realized, oh, okay, it's so that you can pull the gun out. So you undo the screws at the back, you pull the 75 all the way straight out and and, and, and you stick another one in. But it, it's a case of I wouldn't have thought to even look for it had I not been standing in front of the vehicle at that time. Sure. Then you have the question of, okay, well, there's the academic knowledge from reading the book, and then there's the practical knowledge. And that's what I try to emphasize in my books. And I know, James, you've hung out a, lot, a fair bit with Richard Cutland as well, my European counterpart mm. for World of Tanks. And I'm sure he's probably told you much of the same thing, that mm. if you know how a tank works in practice... It makes it much easier for you to look at some obscure thing that nobody ever talks about in the book and then figure out how it works and why is it there. Every single thing on the tank is there for a reason. Right. They didn't just put it on there to look nice. Yeah. And, and, so so, uh, so, so what, are the, what do you think of a, a kind of, you know, on, on some of the obvious tanks, you know, like a Sherman, a Panther, a, a, a Panzer IV, a Cromwell or whatever, you know, when you're looking at those tanks and you've looked at them and you've poured over them in such detail... What are, what are some things that you think, what are those those examples that you're talking about where you look at it and go, wow, okay, I never thought of that or I, I hadn't twigged that and now I'm looking at it, that all makes sense. I mean, what, you know, I, me I remember standing with you and say, saying, this is the most important thing on the Sherman and it was, it was the kind of, it was it the was means the, the of hooking eye. it. Yeah, yeah, from, yeah, from which you could hoist it from a ship to a, you know, onto dry land. Yeah, because you know, what's the point of having a tank that's still stuck in the continental US? It could be the best tank of the world, but if you can't get it overseas, there's no point in it. And the way you got it overseas, where well, you had to lift it up with a crane. And uh, you mentioned also the you know the the forty ton Bailey Bridge. Uh, the American Army had, I think it was uh, Army Regulation eight five zero fifteen, something something very similar to that, and that was the regulation which governed the width and uh, the dimensions and weight of vehicles. And most people have never heard of this regulation, but the army is very, very strict on this. And there is ample examples in the archives of uh, armored, you know, uh, ordnance branch says this tank works. Armored force says it works. The chief of engineers files a non-concurrence because it does not meet with AR 850-15 and will not fit on the army standard bridge. So too wide, too heavy, whatever. Too wide or too heavy. And uh, the example I give is the bridge at Remagen. So the, the American army show up. Oh, look, there's a bridge there. And they get across what a bridge that turns out to be damaged. 
and it takes them i think it was like eight to twelve hours to fix the bridge enough that a sherman could get across the unit that got to remagen also had pershings the pershings couldn't get across for three days while they waited to get a, a system to get the right. pershings across so in the meantime the infantry on the far side if the unit had only the superior pershing that infantry unit would have been on their own without armor support at least not medium right. tank armor support for three days so we're right back with the infantryman and the MG34 that needs dealing with right, right, right from the start of this conversation. That, that exact scenario, that's what you need these regulations for. So you can deliver armor where you know you can deliver armor. Correct. And it's not just the American side. If you look at the development for the German vehicles. So if you look at the history for the development of the Panzer III, which I think is one of the most underrated tanks ever and pro arguably the best tank in the world at the beginning of the war. Uh, and you look at the, the requirements and the specifications, the German army listed out in sequence what they thought was most important. And the, I think the very first one was radius of action. And then it came down to uh, a crew, you know, division of labor within the crew. Right. And so on down. And the very, very last thing was armor. And it said uh, also our standard bridge is 18 tons. If you're going to make a tank more than 18 tons, think very, very carefully about how this is going to get across the river for, let's say, the, uh, the Ardennes campaign. Uh, and now, if you look at it, yes, the Panzer IV was more than 20 tons. Well, you, you get a couple of people, get out of the tank. There, there is a quarter ton less already. <laughs> Drive yep. it across. And, and there's always a little bit of wiggle room in the bridge weight classification as well. Because it, right. it's not like you put 18.1 and, and the thing collapses. <clears throat> But bridging uh, but becomes much more important. important if you're advancing, doesn't it? Because It does. Because yeah. obviously your enemy's going to blow up the bridges as they retreat, so you're then going to have to sort that out and, and kind of find a find a solution to that blown-up bridge, which invariably is something like the Class 40 Bailey Bridge. So obviously, there's, as you say, there's absolutely no point in having something that's bigger than that. I mean, it's very interesting because there was a guy called Tick Bonesteel, who, 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 General Tick Bonesteel. But the time was, I think, was, uh, was, uh, was just a colonel in 1944. And he was on the, originally on the 21st Army Group planning team um, and then was transferred over to Bradley's uh, planning team before D-Day. And he advised that what was needed for Normandy was Pershings because the Pershings were just coming into being and we, they could have brought them over. And, and he said, this is what we need in Normandy. Uh, and, and later on, when he was doing his oral history stuff with um, uh, Carlisle um, and, and when he was writing up his memoirs and all the rest of it, he was still banging this particular drum. But there's very good reasons for not having Pershings in, in Normandy, aren't there? Well, for starters, Armored Force had said, had said we do not want this vehicle. Right. Uh, so so if, you, if you look at the timeline for Pershing, so in 1940, late 42, early 43, uh, the U.S. Oh, we should just say, incidentally, that the Pershing is, 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 what, 56 tons? I mean, it's, sort of, it's, a, it's a sort of equivalent to a Panther or a it's, Tiger. That's a little less than that. It's, it's closer to a Panther. It's maybe 45 ton. Right. And uh, so in 1942, 1943, the U.S. Army have, have a, and it's in the archives, uh, have a deliberate decision to make to attack Germany do we go with the, per the Sherman that we know or the Pershing that we don't know, but which ordinance are telling us is better? And if you think about it, they are now gambling the fate of Western civilization on is ordinance telling us correctly that the Pershing is better? And they have a back. There's a long backstory of ordinance saying this is the greatest thing on earth and sometimes being right. 
and sometimes not being right. Right. So at, at, in 1943, the U.S. Army said, no, we're going with Sherman. Continue to work on the other vehicles in the meantime, but for now, we're going with Sherman. And, that, and they just turn up the taps so much that by the end of the war, they've actually stopped producing the things as fast as they need to. So if you look at the production values, so how many tanks were built in 43 versus 44, you see that the Americans started shutting it down. Because if they look, we've already built enough. By the time any more get built and we send them overseas, the war's going to be over either way. So why bother? And uh, so they, anyway, Pershing shows up a physical specimen that Ordnance now says works without the electric drive and everything else in February, January or February of 44. Which now means you have six months from the first prototype to have the thing tested, approved, and built in sufficient numbers that it's actually worth bringing to, bringing to Normandy. Then, Armored Force get a hold of it and said, look, I realize Ordnance, you guys say that the thing works, but here's, here's a couple of problems. A, it doesn't work as well as you say it does. B, it carries only half as much ammunition as we need, yeah, and so on down the line. So or, uh, I have the document. It's actually dated December 44, but it was actually written a little bit before. But it's dated December 44. T26 E1 is not battle-worthy, and we do not recommend its adoption until the following is fixed. So ordnance go back to make the T26 E3. They fix things. They put more ammunition into it right. at the cost of some other creature comforts. Uh, and then finally said, okay, we are going to build this. And even then they shortcutted the official uh, situation because uh, armored force, uh, correction, army ground forces, their position is field troops are not a testing agency. Right. Whereas the Germans say, hey, we just invented this new thing. We built two of them. Let's send them into a combat unit yes, and see right. what happens. Rush it, rush it to the front, try it out. Yeah, see what happens yeah. to it. Yeah, our yeah. armored force refused to do that. They said, look, if we are going to give our troops equipment, it will damn well do what we say it will do. It may not do as much as they want, but it will do it. Which is, which is an interesting... So you look at the, the whole Firefly business, Sherman Firefly versus 76 Sherman. I am one of the few defenders of the 76 that think it's better than Firefly. <laughs> Mainly because Firefly is a bodge. And you note how it didn't see service after World War II because even the British realized it was a bodge. But I'm not going to say the British were wrong. It is a matter of perception and opinion as to what is better to have something which has a bigger gun in the field now, which is limited because you don't shoot as fast, you can't shoot as quickly, you've got less crewmen and so on. All the liabilities that come with Firefly versus you have a much better tank that will show up a month or two later and in 90% of situations is better. So if you go up against two Sturmgeschutz versus one Tiger, against two Sturmgeschutz, you want the 76. You don't want the 17-pounder. If you're going up against a Panther, you might want the 17-pounder, or, or better yet, something bigger like a Jig Panther. Uh, you might want the 17-pounder over the 76. But how often do you get in one situation versus the other? Right. And we go all the way back to the beginning of this discussion when it became a numbers game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just so interesting. So where do you, I mean, so so in terms of the, uh, I mean, you've sort of hinted at, at the, what you think about the Panther and the Tiger, but I mean, you know, what, what what is your take on them? I mean, were they the right, were the Germans right to kind of push those or should they have, you know, yes. should, or, or, should, or should they have abandoned the Tiger and just built more Panthers? Nope. They, they were, remember, there are different vehicles for different roles. Uh, so Tiger, distinguish yeah. a little bit between Tiger 1 and Tiger 2. Tiger 1 was a project that started yeah. before the war. And there was a period, yeah. about 1942 or so, 
the army started to lose control over what they were getting and it started to become more a matter of the whims of the politicians or at least a right. certain politician's initials you know alpha hotel <laughs> uh, <laughs> um oh by the way the whole easy eight thing uh people say it's for the right i heard you say this out uh the world war ii alphabet and uh, for the us was abel baker charlie dog easy yes. so anything yeah. with yeah, an yeah. e was easy yeah yeah um so tiger was developed with a very specific set of requirements that the German army had, and if it met those requirements, and it's not as if the German army just came up with these requirements out of thin air. They, they looked at it and said, look, we need a breakthrough tank. We need something that does this, does this, does this, and Tiger developed into the way it was, half accidentally, but either way, it met the requirements. And yeah, it required a lot more maintenance, but the Germans put more maintenance troops into the Tiger battalion to make, to make up for this. So as long as Tiger was used in the role for which it was intended, it was fantastic. <laughs> the, problem, the problem becomes when it becomes the fireman of the Eastern Front going from A to B to C, and it's no longer in its initial role, then it starts to get a little bit uh, more problematic. And then when you get to King Tiger, which is an improved, basically is an improved Tiger 1, the Germans are now almost entirely on the defensive. Do you really want a breakthrough tank? Yeah. And even then, you can't specifically say no. Because if all you're doing is you're on the defensive, you're on the defensive, you're on the defensive, you'd have no initiative and you will lose eventually. Yes. So you have to have a counterattack capability. Well, and they, and they have a counterattack mindset after all, don't they? So, uh, 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 you know, what, what, else is, what else is the Mortain offensive? What else is the bulge? It's this counterattack uh, mindset that they've... Certainly, the, again, the politicians who are, who are... Or the one politician in particular who are meddling... <laughs> You know that that you you have a weapon that answers that re that requirement, however right. harebrained it might be. I well, they say I'm not sure counterattack is all that harebrained because as if the object is to bring the allies to a negotiating position. I mean they're not going to win, but if they can at least bring them down to a better negotiating position, they probably will have to counterattack eventually. Yeah, yeah. And so, and they only built what 600 Tiger twos, whatever the number is. So 492. Oh, there you go. Even better. Uh, as for Panther, I think, uh, as, as we were saying before, they were correct. They had to go with the high-quality, low numbers because they couldn't support high numbers of low-quality. Right. The only thing that I'm, I might... I mean, there were a couple of quirks that I harp on about, like, why the hell didn't they give the gunner a periscope? It's beyond me. Uh, but if they had kept the Panther to the original design specifications of maybe six centimeters on the front instead of eight, which Adolf insisted on, then it wouldn't have suffered the final drive reliability problems that it's so famous for, for example, and would have been a much more reliable vehicle. So That's amazing, uh, isn't it? These small, it, small things. They are small things, but they, as, you, as you say, they, they just all add up. So I don't think the Germans were wrong in either case. It was just a matter of, A, they were doomed from the start regardless. They shouldn't, they shouldn't have invaded Russia. <laughs> no. I, I, I think Montgomery had, some, had something to say on that. <laughs> and um, number two was that they had those little niggling details of uh, the vehicle not being designed to set the to fit the requirements that existed at the time. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's just it's, it's just so fascinating, isn't it? It really is so interesting. All these little I just, I love this kind of sort of looking at it from just a slightly different perspective. I really do. I think it's um, yeah. it really opens your eyes. 
Yeah. Well, but, and it, but it is also an answer, a proper an answer to the top Trump's tendency. That, that I mean, that the, the the tank top trumping is a is a you, you can see it every day on the internet if you if you, if you care to. You can yeah. you can you can get it. You can get into that. Yeah. I mean, if we talk about if we post a picture of a tank on on Twitter, we'll get we'll always get someone say Tiger was the best, and you sort of think, well, depends on where you're judging it. Yeah, we're well, judging it, and, and for six months, maybe you know, it's all the, it's all these sort of, all, all, all these sort of. After all, the war changes relentlessly. Is the other thing, doesn't it? It does. That you got the the other question, of course, is uh, the national industry. When did Germany really mobilize for war? And if you look at the Americans, uh, it's a, a lot of people uh, I've mentioned them before elsewhere. A guy called uh, Knudsen. Yeah, probably Hudson, the yeah. most important. Yeah, the, oh, oh, so Simon K. My bad. Uh, probably the most important person for the entire victory of World War II. And how many people don't know who he was? Obviously, you do. Uh, the army had the U.S. Army had the the Army Industrial War College or the Army Industrial College, and its purpose was to teach officers how national industry could be mobilized to succeed in warfare. And I'm pretty sure the German army didn't have that. I'm, I'm pretty sure the British army didn't have that, honestly, but, uh, given the way that the British procurement system worked. Uh, and the, the Americans started 1938. They were doing things like, okay, guys, we realize that Remington, the rifle manufacturer, we realize that we have no need for 100,000 M1 Garands right now, or Garands right now. We can't, we can't afford them. We don't need them. But... We are going to give you the tooling and, and we're going to put in an order for a couple of thousand anyway, just so you know how to make it in case we decide we need to spin it up. And they will have the experience, they will have the tooling, they're already prepared. And this was happening as early as 1938. Yeah, not necessarily amazing, grand particularly, but that, that's the process. Yeah. And uh, it, again, it's down to numbers and efficiency. Well, Nick, thank you so much for talking to us. Um, I have a feeling this is um, unfinished business. Yes, um, come back. <laughs> we can rant about this forever. <laughs> well, like, literally yeah. forever. I mean, I, you know, I'd like to talk to you about the Churchill from top to bottom because that's such an interesting story, and you know, that has a bad rep, and I don't think one it possibly deserves. By the time, I don't know, by the it has time, a bad rep, does it? It's, people see it's unglamorous, isn't it? It's slow and it's boring and all that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, early reliability problems, all that sort of stuff. But the, but, but the point is, by the time its battle arrives, which is Normandy, if you see what I mean, it's 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 the ideal vehicle for supporting that infantryman up against that MG34. Oh, it did fairly well in Italy as well. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, well but I know, but this, but this is, but this is the, this is the point. We could, we, 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 we must do this again. Um, thanks so much for talking to us. Um, uh, uh, obviously, today uh, the listener will not know this, but the day we spoke was the day that they started counting the votes um, in America. We hope everything works out fine for you over there. Um, oh, we'll, we'll survive. <laughs> as, as, I, as I look over the shoulder, hang on a second. I am in Texas. I am well armed. I have my little fortifications. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have my supply of rations and solar power. Fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Nick, and we hope to see you again. Thank you very much. Cheerio. All right, good luck, lads. Cheers, Nick. <laughs>